Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, driving 35 miles an hour into a cow. Well, we have uh, a very special week this week in terms of a film because this might be our most up-to-date film we've ever covered. Uh, when we tackled Tenet, that was pretty darn close. But, uh, yeah, yeah, this one's in the contention for sure. Well, if people want to do the math, let us know. But I think to celebrate the occasion, we had to bring back a very special agent. Now, she's never actually joined us solo before. So, uh, you know, we're, we're finally giving her her own show. And what a film to tackle, you know, uh, really rolling out the red carpet. So uh, without further ado, our guest this week, the third agent of the Spy Hearts podcast is Shayla Miller. Hello, Shayla. How are you? Hello, I'm good. And I'm so thrilled to be here to talk about this film that I'm sure you absolutely adored. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Now, you have joined us in the past uh, to cover the Brosnan Roundtable. You also joined us to cover On Her Majesty's Secret Service, two of our most popular episodes, which I can only attribute to the other guests that joined us on those episodes. Absolutely, me as well. It was nothing to do with me. No, what no. do I know? No, we're just bringing you back because we ran out of people. Beautiful. Absolutely. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what's, what's new? What's been going on with you? Uh, nothing too much. Just sort of uh, ramping up to start filming Sweet Time, our YouTube show that I have with my friend Chelsea. Um, so it was, it's fun to come up with some ideas for that and try to outdo ourselves. And that's, that's pretty much been the main focus. And tell us, what sort of things are you planning for season four? Well, we always try to have like a baking episode. And our first episode of the season is always us trying to recreate each other somehow. So, and we're trying to make it like crazier each time. The first time we just painted ourselves like, like little, just like portraits of ourselves. The, the next season we had like 3D model heads and we tried to recreate <laughs> each other with that and this time we're trying to come up with an idea for that and we uh you know i'm blanking on all the ideas that i uh that we came up with but it's okay because you, you shouldn't know them anyway it's all a secret until <laughs> the episodes come out i think if i ever was asked to draw a picture of cam it <laughs> wouldn't end well and i'm sure cam's picture of me would just be an all black painting and just the words pain written across it <laughs> <laughs> or if I'm doing a 3D printed head, it's too big for my apartment. I think that's the problem. Oh, well, it's an ego thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, shots fired. Right, okay. <laughs> Off to a good start here, folks. I haven't even actually announced the film yet. Good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. Well, speaking of uh, digitally recreated and inserted into something, Cam, what are we talking about this week? Yes, we are tackling 2022's The 355, starring Jessica Chastain, Diane Kruger, Lupita Nyong'o, Penelope Cruz, and Bing Bing Fan. Yes, this one has been on our list for a while to tackle. It's actually one of the first films that has come out in the cinemas since we started this podcast because of the pandemic and things like that. I know that there's some other notable ones that will come out. I think a James Bond film came out at some time recently. I think so probably huh. uh, who cares but I, think I missed it yeah i've got no time for it um but i think what we're gonna do is just talk about our first experiences but it's a little weird because it's so recent a lot of the films we tackle are 20 30 40 50 years old that we might have watched before 
I mean, I didn't see this in theaters. This was a first watch for me. Shayla, had you seen this before? I had not. It was a first watch for me as well. Cam? Yeah, no. Um, I know we had considered doing a declassified episode on it, but it kind of landed in that January release spot, and we were coming off the holidays. We also had, like, Kingsman out there, and we just were too busy with the podcast, honestly, to do a declassified at the time. So that was kind of why I wanted to slot it in here, was to catch up with it while it's pretty new on streaming and people are watching it. Yeah, absolutely. It's still mentioned. I even got a mention recently in our Salt episode when we were talking about that film. Um, yeah. Our guest M mentioned the film. But I did want to say, I mean, just about experiences and my first experience with the film. A little story, if you, if you don't mind me sharing. Please. So I won't tell you what I feel about the film just yet because that's spoiling it. But today I watched it for the second time. And then I went to have dinner before I prepared for this podcast. I'd written my notes and my other half said, hey, let's watch a film. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to watch a film. I don't want to like, mix it up in my head. I've got, I'm in 355 mode. I am drilled in and ready <laughs> to talk about this film, you know. Um, And we watch a bit of Ozark and then she sticks on a film. Good luck to you, Leo Grand. And Boy, am I in love with that film. We got halfway through it and then I had to come to this recording. And all I can think about right now is going back and finding out what's happening with Leo Grand. And that is the new Emma Thompson film, correct? Absolutely. It's literally just the two of them in the room having sex. I'm, I'm here for it. There you have it. Spicy. I mean, if anyone wants to hear me talk about that on the episode, do let us know. That'll be a weird declassified <laughs> episode. Uh, but, uh, is, there, is there a Patreon connection for Agents in the Field? Agents in the Sheets, maybe. Oh. <laughs> oh, hello, sailor. Um, but for those of you who don't know about the 355, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. The 355, work together or die alone. A group of top female agents from American, British, Chinese, Colombian and German government agencies are drawn together to try and stop an organization from acquiring a deadly weapon to send the world into chaos. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah, that's pretty generic. Yeah. I mean, appropriate. But yeah, um, I, I mean, that sums it up pretty well. I mean, this movie is, let's be honest, it's a MacGuffin chase. Yeah. There's an item that's loose. Agents need to track it down. It's something that could be applied to a lot of spy movies we cover on this show. Yeah, I literally had like three different MacGuffins from other films that are exactly the same as this pop into my head whilst watching this film. And I have noted them down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, what was the one in Triple X, uh, the second one, State of the Union? It had a really funny one. I, I, I wrote it down. It's got a name. And the name is escaping me. Oh, that. oh it's, it's Pandora's Box. Pandora's Box. Okay, yeah, you know, you got yeah. Rabbit's Foot in Mission Impossible 3. There's all these various MacGuffins that do incredible things. You had the satellites crashing in the third XXX. Yeah. Transmookas in Spy Kids. Yep. Yep. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. We love a MacGuffin here. I think we, didn't we rename it to the Transmooka? Every MacGuffin is a Transmooka. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Sure. It's just a better name. I always think of the Solex Agitator in Man with the Golden Gun. That's another yeah. one that jumps out. Yeah, yeah that's good. But I, I think it's it's interesting. I, I kind of want to see what you do with this one, Cam, because with a lot of these films, when we tackle the behind the scenes before we get to the review, we've had years since where there's been interviews with the cast. There's been all these kinds of resources you can look upon to find out information about how these films are put together. So 
I'm going to throw it to you, Cam. What do you have for us? <laughs> yeah, so like Nothing. when we tackle... <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> when we tackle, as you said, like a lot of older films, there's not only a lot of production stories that have come out in the years or decades afterwards. There's also a perspective on what the movie was where a lot of the um, stories being written are about, hey, here's what went wrong or here's what went right. Here's things that helped with the movie that ultimately made it a success. You kind of get that perspective later down the road, which we don't have with a movie this new. And that was the same thing when we covered Tenet, really, where it was like Christopher Nolan just kind of explaining how they achieved certain shots without a sense of, you know, really how an audience had responded to it in the long term. So that's kind of the case with the 355. But the movie started really as kind of the idea of Jessica Chastain, who was a producer on the film. She was um, serving on a Cannes jury. And uh, I guess at a certain point or the, during that process of just, you know, judging, in, you know, films on that jury, just began to think about, like, why aren't there any female ensemble action movies? And one's played, like, totally straight along the lines of, like, a Bourne or a Mission Impossible. And um, she was a producer, as I said, and she had had a career already doing that as well. She'd worked on things like the Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby trilogy, uh, Ava, which we'll cover on the show, Eyes of Tammy Faye, which she won the Best Actress Oscar for. So this was sort of her next kind of idea. And she just thought, I did Zero Dark Thirty. I met so many contacts who told me these stories of of women who work in the intelligence field. I have all of this training. This should be able to be something we could apply to, you know, a spy fr a franchise. And so when she was shooting Dark Phoenix with um, writer-director Simon Kinberg, um, that was his first film. Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. Simon Kinberg, um, uh -oh. writer-producer who has Ooh. a pretty long track record. His first major thing was writing Triple X, State of the Union, which we yeah. referenced earlier. He went on to do stuff like uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Sherlock Holmes. He also jumped on the X-Men franchise with X-Men The Last Stand and stayed on as a writer-producer pretty much to the end of the Fox era. So he, whether he was writing the films or even just producing stuff like Deadpool or Logan, he was always kind of associated with the X-Men franchise. And he made his debut writing and directing X-Men Dark Phoenix as a, as a director. That was his debut. And so I guess when he was shooting with Chastain on set, where she, for those that don't remember played a villain who had barely a name, much less a personality, in that film. Um, she pitched the idea... I do not remember her in that film at all. She was the main villain. Yeah, right? Wasn't that Phoenix? Well, she's not really the villain. The main villain is Jessica Chastain. That movie has erased itself from my head. Uh-huh. So, while they're shooting this movie, she pitches this concept of, you know, a group of women... And espionage, something she'd like to do. And Simon Kigberg thinks it's a great idea. So they bring in Teresa Rebeck, who is a longtime writer-producer who worked in a lot of TV, especially starting in the 90s, like NYPD Blue she worked on, uh, Law & Order, Criminal Intent, Smash, a lot of things like that. She also did a few screenplays. She wrote 1996's Harriet the Spy. She had a story credit on Catwoman, the Halle Berry film. And in more recent years, has worked more on writing and directing her own independent films. But they went to her. She has the story credit on the 355. Yes, Scott. I, I just want to clarify for, for everyone here, Shayla, for me, for you, Cam, and for the listeners at home. The team that brought this film together includes the producer 
of the Fantastic Four reboot from 2015, and Dark Phoenix, who you also directed and wrote, and the person who wrote Harriet the Spy and Catwoman. Harriet the Spy has a real fan base around it. I haven't seen it. I'm just making more of a joke about a Nickelodeon kids film. Maybe it's great. We haven't done it, and we will. Catwoman, we probably won't. Or maybe we will. I'm not going to blame her for Catwoman, though, because the thing about Catwoman is she is a story credit, not a screenplay. So tell me, what was the original story pitch? Like, that could be something completely different than what wound up going through about 17 writers before that movie hit the screen. Cam's going to bat for Catwoman. All right. <laughs> Hardcore. Never thought I'd see it, but yeah. here we are. <laughs> uh, that, that's an angle. Fair enough. <laughs> so she wrote the initial draft of what became the 355. At a certain point, Kinberg did a rewrite as well. So they have dual credits for the screenplay, but um, uh, Rebek has the sole story credit. And um, part of the kind of concept that Jessica Chastain had for this was that the actresses in the movie would essentially own it. They would raise the finances for it independently and then sell it to a studio to distribute. So like they would have ownership over what this movie was. They would work with the writers through the development of the screenplay. So they actually assembled the cast, which was, you know, as I said, Penelope Cruz, Bing Bing Fan, Lupita Nyong'o, um, and Marion Cotillard um, joining Jessica Chastain to sell the movie at Cannes. And Marion Cotillard, in case you're wondering, dropped out just before production and was replaced by Diane Kruger. But Cotillard was involved initially in helping sell the movie. And so they basically were pitching this to financiers and they got the $75 million budget through those means. And as I said, they had creative involvement and they were pitching their vision to buyers of this film. I have another question on behalf yes. of the listener once again. So the idea is, the concept is, and I'll go back a second. We, me and you, Cam, and I'm sure Shayla joins us in this um, sentiment, have been clamoring for female-led spy films for a very long time with strong protagonists that don't rely on them. Just, oh, it's just the women. It, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a strong story is what we want. Okay, so this is, everyone's nodding. Good. So the idea is they get these, they get the actors in and they develop the characters themselves. They are giving input to the writers. Like, they essentially want the the actors who are involved to essentially own the film to be giving guidance as to what they want this movie to be and working with the writers through the development of the script, as well as obviously being the ones who are pitching the movie to buyers. Too many cooks. Okay. Yep. No worries. Moving on. <laughs> but also kind of cool. I think that's kind of a cool way to do it. Yeah. to kind of. It, it's, it's good to have, like, I love the idea of having an actor involved. I just, I remember hearing horror stories about, um, Chris Hemsworth and oh, oh what's her name on Men of Black International? Tessa Thompson. Tessa yeah. Thompson. Yeah, and that being just a complete train wreck. So I, I, that's my only experience of it so far on this show. So that's why I'm hesitant. But please go on, Cam. I, I guess the difference there is though, Men in Black International's a studio vehicle across the board. That is a studio-controlled property, and those two who probably felt powerless in terms of that creative process, stepping in and being like, we want our own writers handling this because we don't like where it's going versus this, which from the inception was something that the, you know, Jessica Chastain and her team wanted to oversee. Okay. I'm on board. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the gist of it. They swapped out Cody Yard for Kruger, but there really wasn't many stories about the production in terms of like difficulties or anything like that. The only thing that I really came across was that um, Jessica Chastain injured herself 
um, considerably during one of the um, crane stunts, which I'm guessing was the end when she's climbing the building where she fell and cracked her head on marble and had to be rushed to the hospital. But um, that was really the only real like hiccup I came across in terms of production. So I think this is where the problem with doing more recent films comes in, because if we did this in five years' time, I'm sure mm-hmm. there'll be a ton of... Or maybe we'd have done a bunch of Spymaster interviews by then and spoken to some of the, the production team and we'd know more. You don't know. But I did have a question, but I don't know if we want to tackle it in the review or now. Uh, but it's about the production. You've raised it. Let's hear it. So we've spoken about Bing Bing Fan. You've mentioned she's in the film. Yeah. At any point, was she on set? Well, this was a uh, COVID production, so I don't know if that was perhaps an issue. She also was dealing with pretty serious tax problems that there was like a whole like scandal where she like disappeared for like a period of time as well. So I don't know if that was perhaps tied into it, but I think there's a lot of factors maybe affecting her involvement and, you know, being there regularly on set. Okay. Well, I think we'll deal with it more later then, but that... It sounds like you've. It sounds like they they've tried, but go on, Cam. So as I said, the movie had a budget of seventy five million dollars, and it was released in the January death slot, as they call it, where typically January is the worst time to premiere a movie because there's a lot of Oscar fare that people are still watching, a lot of holiday movies that are still lingering, whether it's you know like a Marvel film or a Star Wars film or something along those lines. I don't remember what was going on in uh, January of this year. Oh, probably Spider Man No Way Home. That would have been the big one still bringing in money. Yeah. And um, so it did not perform very well. Domestically, it did $14.6 million. International, 13.2 for a worldwide total of $27.8 million. Can you insert the uh, Price is Right fail music in that point? Yeah. So that's basically a third of its budget. And then you've got to take marketing costs into a, uh, a consideration as well. So, uh, yeah, the 355 will not get a 356. Oh, he's he's planned that one. He (laughs) planned that one. And the top three for the year. And again, that is this point in history. This point, you know, it's going to change. You know, if you're listening to this episode, you know, handful of weeks down the road, I'm sure. But number one, Doctor Strange in the uh, Multiverse of Madness. Number two, Top Gun Maverick. And number three, The Batman. My guess is, uh, you know, a month or so from now, Top Gun Maverick's number one. Yeah, I think so. Um, is there anything else coming out later this year that might contend with it? Avatar's out this year, isn't it? Avatar and also Jurassic World Dominion. Just internationally, those movies make huge money, so that could probably beat out the Batman at least. I was speaking to someone, I think it was a member of my family, the other day. I saw it opening weekend because I'm a masochist. And I say it, I mean Jurassic World Dominion. Mm-hmm. But like a fr- I think it was a friend of the family saw it second the second weekend and usually you see like a 50 percent drop off statistically it's usually the norm and it was a packed house it did very well so i it's got to still be making money yeah it it like really beat uh, lightyear in opening weekend and that was kind of a surprise to people so it's very clear that families are choosing jurassic world over you know the new pixar film I, i haven't seen lightyear i can't talk about it but i wouldn't take my kids to see dominion if i had kids i don't know Kids love that sort of stuff. I would have loved it if I, if I was like 10 years old. I'd take him back to, I suppose, yeah, seeing a dinosaur on the big screen is kind of a powerful thing. All right, fair enough. I'm being, I'm being really pessimistic today. Enjoy it, kids. Enjoy Dominion. Go out and see it. Go to the cinemas. Actually, I appreciate that. Go and see pictures. 
in the cinema. Don't stream them. That's right. So currently this movie stands at number 34 for the year between Shin Ultraman and The Cashmere Files, two international films. I, I like Ultraman. I've seen quite a few of the films. So, okay. Yeah, cool. I've never seen an Ultraman movie. My uh, my dad was into them when I was quite young. I saw quite a few of like the original ones from like I think the eighties. I mean, like if you like Power Rangers and like Godzilla type films, it's all kind of rolled into that. I'm more familiar with Jet Jaguar, the Ultraman, I believe, ripoff in the Godzilla films that showed up later. I haven't seen that, but I can imagine. I know exactly what happens. <laughs> a man in a, in a suit kicks down some buildings that are made of uh, styrofoam. More or less, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm on board. Yeah. So, as I said, just to wrap it up, this movie was envisioned as a franchise. Uh, not going to be the case. Yeah, I, I think we can maybe discuss the uh, the sequel and uh, potentially lack thereof. But it's a shame. It's another one of these examples of a, a, a female-led spy film that just hasn't done well at the theaters. I know. I remember seeing the trailer for this and, and thinking, hmm, that didn't really grab me. But I was making this show at the time, so you would think it did. Yeah. Well, Shayla, do you remember the marketing or when it came out? Did it appeal to you at the time? I didn't hear of this film at all until you asked me to cover it. Like, there was nothing. Nothing came by me. I'm not a good spy, I guess. I shouldn't be your third agent. I, I had no intel. Well, I mean, I'm someone who typically goes to the movies at least once a week. Um, and I don't think I ever saw a trailer for this in front of any of the movies I was seeing. And if I'm someone who's going all the time and I'm not seeing any marketing, I mean, I guess there was TV spots, but it doesn't feel like they were, let's be honest, if it's opening in January, they're not dumping a lot of money on their marketing campaign. I remember seeing posters on buses here, but that's it. I can't say I remember seeing trailers in front of like No Way Home or anything like that. You know what it felt like in terms of the way it was kind of dumped and even marketed? Do you remember there was that movie... I may be getting the name wrong, but I think it was called The Kitchen. It was the DC Comics adaptation. It had a female cast, and it was more of a crime story kind of film. And very poorly reviewed, basically dumped, made next to no money, and has completely vanished off the face of the earth. It sounds like I didn't get cooking. Accurate. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, that's why I earn the big bucks. But... Uh... Well, I think uh, it's, it's interesting because usually I would like drop a pun in here as I segue into the review, but this film has so few things I can quote, uh, which maybe I'll come back to. So, Shayla, you're the guest, and I would actually like to point out you now hold the title for most visits on the show. Oh, I'm honored. You didn't even want me here. Oh, wow. I know. You that must suck that for one, you guys. You? Yeah, it's, it's the worst. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could really like wipe that stain off, but uh, permanent marker right there. <laughs> but I, I, I do want to know, Shayla, what did you think? Because you hadn't seen the trailers. You had no idea this film existed, which is a fault of the marketing. But you're a spy enthusiast. You love James Bond films. You've got a tattoo sleeve of james bond tattoos you know you love spy films and you hadn't heard of this film so this should be up your alley what did you think well maybe not hearing about it might have helped it a little bit because i i recognize that it's not very good but i still really enjoyed it despite it being incredibly predictable like i pretty much hit every single beat i guess the whole thing but i still really liked it 
there was enough that just kept me interested. So I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it, uh, despite its flaws. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was, I was going to like go to bat against it, but I, I don't know if I really want to go bat against it necessarily. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but Cam, I want to know what you think. I, I'm racking my brain in terms of the movies we've covered. We've done um close to a hundred, you know, normal episodes of this show. And then also declassifieds and various other things. I'm trying to think of a movie we've done that was as generic as the 355. I'm not saying bad. We've done things that are far worse than the 355. But in terms of what it's giving, it feels like it's just entirely generic, which I found incredibly frustrating when you have three Oscar winners and then also, you know, Diane Kruger, who you know, not an Oscar nominee or anything, but you look at her in like Inglorious Bastards, and that's a fantastic performance. And, you know, Bing Bing Fan has done really good work. You have an all-star cast here. And I'm I'm more baffled by this movie. Like, I just don't understand it. And I think part of the issue for me is that if you're going to create a franchise, you know, they're citing Mission Impossible. They're citing Bourne. And I'm sure they were talking about Bond and things like that on the set as well. They did talk about Bond. There's a Bond line. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They actually reference it in movie. That's right. Um if you are going to launch a franchise, you have to have some sort of hook. Like, what makes your movie special? And as, like, a two-hour, just kind of, like, spy movie filler, this movie's pretty inoffensive. It's, as Shayla said, like, it's incredibly predictable. Like, I wrote down the Sebastian Stan note, like, I wrote dead? Nope. Um, it's one of my earliest notes that I. It's took. actually my my fourth note is mm-hmm. Nick ain't dead. Yeah, he's going to come back. Yeah, yeah. I said Sebastian Stan being dead so early on—that's suspicious. I knew it. He'd be back. Yeah, and so it's like we've done things like trench coat, which are physically painful to sit through. And I didn't find that with the three five five. I was more just like confused about what they felt they were selling that was worthy of a franchise. Even from just like a screenplay level, like the dialogue is very uninteresting. The characters don't feel fully fleshed out. And I think there's real problems with action direction in this movie. And I want to dive more into that when we actually talk about the movie. But Scott, what about you? I tried to be witty with my my little <laughs> intro line. And then I stole your 356 joke. Yeah. And so I'm just going to end now. Uh, I'm done. No, I wrote down all sizzle, no stakes. Uh, that deserves an Emmy. Uh, no, but I wrote, yeah, basically. An Emmy? <laughs> I know. Televised? A, a Tony? I don't know. <laughs> Give me an EGOT. I don't know what any of these things are. <laughs> I don't follow awards, guys. Jeez, leave me alone. Get off my back, Cam. Christ's sake. No, I, I love the idea. I love the idea. There's mm-hmm. an all-star team of these actors that I love in films that I've enjoyed and I want to see them as these kick-ass spies. And then I get this lackluster film. The direction is... It's silly twists that you see coming. The action choreography, fight choreography, is exactly the way I feel that you do, Cam. It's just confusing at times, hard to follow. And this is like this general sense of... Because of the MacGuffin, there's just no tension. Yeah. Like... It's it's got this all powerful thing. It hasn't even got a name. It's like the the device or something like they call it in the film. But it can bring down satellites like the one in Triple X can. It can 
turn off power. It can turn everyone's phone on or off. I don't know. It can do everything, apparently. It can order your Amazon shopping. It can do it all. And there's never any threat. Like, they show a clip of some planes coming down, but it never actually threatens your characters. They're not being attacked. They're not being cyber-attacked or anything like that. Their lives aren't being influenced by this device. So really, it's just that they're saying, oh, we have to get this thing. And you're like, why? What's it, what's, how's it harming me as a viewer? How are you defending me? And you never get that feeling. And so I came into it with all this hope. And this, this film had a bit of a stink. Like, the reviews weren't great. Yeah. Um, but I, I've put that in the background many times in this show. Spy Kids films, I went into them fresh, loved some of them, didn't love them all. But I couldn't get... I couldn't bite into this and enjoy it. And I'm glad Shayla found something to enjoy in here, which I want to go into in a second. No, I, I'm genuinely glad you found something to enjoy. I can laugh at it. But I... I M said it recently on the Sort episode, to get a film to happen, to create a film, is a miracle. And that should, that should be celebrated as, as a step. But that gets you to like 3 out of 10. You don't have to find the 7. And I think this film doesn't give us 7 more. That's fair. And that's where I get frustrated with it. So... Yeah, that's that's kind of where I, I, I sit with it. Like, I, I, I wanted it to be better. I was I was exceedingly frustrated by the result. Well, when we had uh, Am on, we were talking about female-driven spy films. And I think, Scott, I think it was you that criticized the 355 um, in terms of its marketing for just being like, it's a spy movie with women. Like, that was their entire marketing push, which mm-hmm. is, like, very generic. And it's like, that's not going to hook an audience. Like, you have to give an audience, like, what excites them? What makes them actually want to see the movie versus just, like, well, it's actresses and they're in a spy movie. And yet, when I watched the movie, The 355, my takeaway is I wouldn't know how to market this movie really either. Well, like, films used to be done that way, though. You look at, like, I'm going to pull out a deep reference here. Look at My Favorite Spy of Bob Hope. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, people had no idea what my favorite spy was, but they knew they who still Bob don't. Hope. Well, yeah, <laughs> about about three hundred odd people know what my favorite spy is, but that's around about it. Um, deep cut. It's there. not their favorite spy. It, it, no, there's literally three five five people that have I know what my favorite spy is. There we go. There's the connection. Yeah, but um, people went because Bob Hope was in the film. Yeah, that's why they turned up. And you put these big names on the marquee, people do turn up. In theory. But not in droves. Well, in theory. And some people did turn up to see this film. It's like no one showed up. It's not like an absolute, absolute bomb. But I just think, like, you can't hang your hat on it's born with girls. Well, we also don't live in an era of movie stars. Movie stars aren't a draw anymore. Properties are. Um, hooks that people understand. Concepts. Like, Chris Hemsworth can be the biggest star in the world if he's in a Thor movie. And then put him in, in the heart of the sea or something and no one shows up. It's like the whole movie star era is just gone unless you're like DiCaprio, Tom Cruise, maybe Denzel Washington. Very few actors are actually draws. But they're putting out better films. Well, that's also fair. But I mean, even if you put DiCaprio in like a very middle of the road movie, people will probably at least turn out opening weekend. Well, Shayla, jump in. I mean, we're... You came in with all this positivity, and then me and Cam, you know, grimaces on our faces and poo-pooed everything. The wet blankets. <laughs> the, the, yeah, that's that's what they call us. Um, that's a weird name. Anyway, um, 
But let's let's pivot over to things that we liked. And this is, I've got things I liked and I want to talk about. And I want you to lead us off, Shayla, because you were the, the positive one of the initial sort of reviews. What do you like about the film? I I liked the girls. Like I I thought that like I love Diane Kruger. I'll watch her in anything. And I I thought that Marie was really badass. And if I could be any of them, I would hope that I'd be a Marie. <laughs> but I don't think I am. I think I'm probably more of a Grassi. Um, but uh, which is funny because I do feel like maybe the reason why you guys didn't like it is because it was very close to the new Charlie's Angels remake. Like it reminded me like the same kind of twist thing, the same kind of... reading my notes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm more of an apologist for that movie, I think, than Scott is. You know, you're right. You're absolutely right. You are. I remember that. But uh, yeah, like I just, I I liked some of the shots. I, I, like, I like seeing women just kick ass. So in some of the fight scenes where like Jessica Chastain was just dragging a guy around by his tie and the interrogation scene with the shooting the guy in the leg, like I like seeing women just have agency and just beat the crap out of men and women you know like i that was a that was a cool as- aspect for me um and i i love a good tactile neck as well so like at the end where Je- where uh jessica's character is going around looking all badass in her tactile neck they're all like kind of like lame things to like like oh, no they're not lame no, they're things, what you enjoy don't hang don't, on, don't me... disown them yeah, yeah yeah no you're right yeah you're absolutely right but oh, they're like it's not like deep stuff that I like about the film. Like I know that it, it doesn't have much substance. That's what that's more what I meant. Like it's not I like kind of just like the surface level stuff of just like the fights and like the some of the shots were really cool. Like in the beginning where they pull away from all the dead bodies in the in the in the mansion. I thought that looked really cool. But it just it doesn't necessarily have substance. But just sometimes I feel like you don't need a lot of substance. You just need to be entertained and that's kind of how I felt with that one. Let's be honest. Octopussy doesn't have substance. Nope. No, I mean a lot of these spy action films um are real style over substance they are superficial pleasures and so like if elements of that connect that's really what they're hoping for they're hoping with a movie like this that people have fun with the ride and want to sign up for a second one so if some elements work then you know at least they did something right yeah fair enough like i do wish there was more and i I, i'm very excited for the day where we have a female-led spy film that doesn't get a bunch of one and two out of 10 on IMDb and might, you know, get some higher ratings, but I had a good time. Well, I, I, I want to dig into this with you more because me and Cab could spin off for another 20 minutes to talk about things we didn't like or, or whatever. And I don't know who necessarily the target audience is for this film. Maybe that's one of the problems with the marketing. Like, who, who are they pitching this film to? But out of the three of us, it's interesting that two men didn't like it the one woman in the show who's reviewing it did like it. Now that's very base level and very a generic analysis of what we're talking about. But I would like to dig into why that is because you said you like some of the surface level stuff, but what is it you would be looking for in a female led spy film? That's a great question. What would I be? I, I mean, I, I would love a good solid story with no plot holes. I think mm-hmm. that would be the main thing, which wasn't necessarily the case here. It was kind of, I mean, having a, whatever that even was, like a computer, a ginormous computer chip (laughs) that can just do anything or whatever that even was, like, it's just, it's kind of far-fetched to begin with. Like, maybe a bit more realism as well might be nice for, like, you know, a a female-led spy film. Like, I just want, like, a good story because I feel like if you you don't have a good story, you don't have anything. Okay. I think, yeah. So, I suppose... 
and not not to give it like a, a rating out of 10 because we don't do that here but it for this film to bump up a little bit more for you you would have just liked a more coherent story yeah and, and, and we're talking it's going into your upper echelons of films at that point yeah like a better story and maybe a bit better script um and the characters needed they like cam said they did need to be fleshed out a little bit more they were kind of they felt a little again kind of surface level like they kind of tried to get deep like i didn't really buy the whole um uh nick and what was uh jessica's character oh, was mace. mace um mace mace yeah like the whole mace and nick thing <laughs> in the beginning where she was like we're best friends and then <laughs> they're doing it uh, if sebastian stan comes on to me um uh i mean fair enough i'm with you especially if he's got the arm <laughs> I mean, that's just... Uh, <laughs> see you later, guys. I'm off. Ta-ra. Have you seen Fresh, Scott? No. You may want to rethink your opinion on Sebastian Stan. <laughs> Don't trust that guy. You never really know. Just people, check out Fresh. It's very disturbing. Anyways. Okay. okay. Yeah. I, I thought there was some Ooh. sort of inside scoop you had there, like all oh, behind the scenes. No, no, no. He's eating people. Um, Entirely movie-verse. Okay. Okay. Um no, I'm going to go back to watching Leo Grand after this. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't buy that either. I, I, I totally get what you mean there, but it, just to talk about the film a bit more before we talk about likes, maybe. It's tough to develop a, uh, well, five protagonists simultaneously and give them all time to, to grow and learn about them. Like, I think they do good jobs with, maybe we are spinning into likes, yeah, you, know, you 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 get sort of a sense of who they all are. I think some of the there's some that are perhaps more undefined, like Marie doesn't really get as much time as she should. Like you get that sort of mentor who's training her early on, and then is, is spoilers killed off later. And then you get Bing Bing Fan in later in the film. I mean, she's she's all over the yeah. marketing, but she's really only in the last forty minutes of the film. I forgot she was even in the movie by the time she showed up. Yeah, I could I could see why. I, I, I do genuinely think she was not there on set once. It's entirely possible. Every single shot with her felt like it was green screen. That's an incredible theory. This was that COVID period. I, I, I will actually, I will, I will test anyone online. Prove me wrong. I want to be proven wrong. But I watched this twice in preparation. And I could not find a scene where she was on set with anyone else. And it didn't have that sort of... I mean, you guys know you, you like Star Wars films. You remember when the special editions came out? Okay, Shayla's not a Star Wars fan. I'm sorry. Hmm. I'm sure I'll, I'll pick another film or Cam can pick another film. But when the special editions came out and they like inserted animals into the back of Tatooine. Sure. And it had that digital sheen to it. And we all know it was fake. And it's like that um, uncanny valley feeling. I had that every single time I saw Bing Bing Fan. I couldn't shake it. Well, I mean, this isn't this isn't outside the realm of possibility as well, because you know, you think of uh, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, where you had mm-hmm. Tignataro. Um, yeah, Tignataro um, was green screened into all of her footage in that movie, and she's interacting with characters. So that movie actually does a pretty good job in selling it. So that technology entirely exists and can be done. Um, I gotta say, the stuff with Bing Bing Fan didn't jump out as too glaring to me, but that doesn't mean it wasn't done. Yeah, I mean, if if people know online, let us know. But I mean, just to go back to my point, it's hard to juggle five protagonists and give them all time. I think Jessica Chastain and Penelope Cruz come off the best. Of Interesting. The five. Interesting. That's not my take at all. But really, proceed, proceed. No, I want to hear why those two did for you. Well, they they kind of get arcs. 
somewhat. You know, she learns Jessica Chastain learns to I don't know, not trust men by the end and, and become her own woman and lead the team herself, I guess. And And she gets a family because she was alone in yes, the beginning. Okay, no, that's right. She talks about how alone she is. Perfect. There we go. Thank you, Shayla. And then Penelope Cruz, you know, manages to return to her family and learns that she is an agent deep down and she has the skills to be just like the rest of them. And it reminded me a lot of the uh, one of the characters in Charlie's Angels 2019, the recruit. Oh, Naomi Scott, yeah. Naomi Scott, yeah. That, that sort of arc oh, by the yeah, end, yeah. basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So th- I think they did well, but Cam, you seem to not agree. Well, it's I didn't think they were bad. I just thought, like, I mean, Penelope Cruz seemed a little lost in this movie in a drift. I just felt like that character didn't have a very strong function throughout. And Jessica Chastain, it's fine, but I'm like, I find her incredibly frustrating as, like, whenever she wants to lock in and do one of these, like, blockbuster roles, like, she's one of the best working actresses we have. You see her in, like, Eyes of Tammy Faye, you know, that came out, uh, you know, last fall. That movie's incredible. She wins Best Actor for it. Like, her performance is just towering in it. And I've seen her in so many things where she's good. Tree of Life, you know, Zero Dark Thirty. She's incredibly capable. And yet she, like, plugs herself into these kind of generic action movies like this or um, The Huntsman Winter's War or Dark Phoenix and I'm just like what is she doing like she just doesn't click in the same way there's something missing for me it was Lapita Nyong'o and Diane Kruger felt like they were legit locked in on characters and I mean Lapita Nyong'o Maybe she was just so bored of doing very, like, kind of tedious Disney roles like Maz Kanata and, like, I think it was, like, a wolf in the Jungle Book. Like, it was, like, finally I get to play a flesh-and-blood character again. And she brings so much to that just performance. Like, I would totally buy her continuing on in sequels. And same with Diane Kruger, where I'm like, I'm interested in this character who has this very tragic backstory, um, has had you know, obviously issues with her father, had to like turn him in at 15 for being a Russian spy. I just found her compelling and someone who was very interesting as she kind of navigated this story. She was always like the one you were never 100% sure of. She's also the one that I knew of the five of them that she was going to be the one to get shot or killed. Mm. And I was correct about that as well. Yeah. I didn't see that actually coming. No, I didn't see that one coming. I did. I totally did. I, I wrote it all down. It, it seems like me and Cam are on opposite sides of the, the development angle. Who who do you think had the best sort of character arc throughout the film, Shayla? I think probably um, Mace and Khadijah. But also with with Marie, which is Diane's character, I... I I kind of see where you're coming from, Scott, where you said like you feel like she didn't have as much time or as much of an arc, but I feel like that was kind of her character. Like I felt that she was very mysterious. So it kind of it didn't I didn't notice, like it didn't bother me, like I thought what I saw was enough. Like I I really like she was my favorite. She came out my favorite just cuz I thought that she was absolutely she badass. She was the coolest, I think, at the bunch. She had that sort of I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm going back to Charlie's Angels and I'm sorry, but she had that Drew Barrymore energy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's like the badass of the group, the rebel. Yeah. yeah. But one who really had her barriers up, which is why she had more of that mysterious element, because she was a real outsider in this group. Yeah. And I, I even appreciated Grassi, like, like, because she didn't have as much to do because where she wasn't actually a spy. But I don't know. I thought I, I enjoyed that she was really lost because it was almost like she was us. Like, if I was on a mission with those badass females, I would also be like, oh, shoot, I don't know what to do. So I, I kind of enjoyed her character. You'd find me sort of crying in a corner. 
Yeah, pretty much. I'd be the same, probably. Yeah, I think we all agree on that one. <laughs> well, okay. Let, let's look at things that we did like then. So, I I liked... Hmm. Yeah, well, that was me. Moving on. Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I said it in my intro bit. I love the premise. I love the concept. The nugget of the story that they pitched. That Maybe how it was fleshed out, I didn't like. But this concept of bringing all these different spies from different agencies around the world, unlikely pairings, you know, chalk and cheese coming together. Um, I think Cam had a problem with saying chalk and cheese at one point before. That is a very British saying. The most British of sayings. Yeah, what does that mean? Wow, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, it's like two unlikely things coming together. Okay. Um, how, however you'd like to say it. Chalk and cheese is... Okay. You Brits know what I'm talking about. Thanks, guys. But yeah, this, these unlikely pairings and this unlikely sisterhood that appears in this group, the camaraderie by the end. And I think some of the best moments in this film is where it's just them. There's this moment where they're all hanging out, I think, in like a hideout for a little while and just sort of talking about their experiences. I think that's probably the best moment in the film because it feels like it's actually humans talking to humans. I agree. I liked that one. Cam is making a face. I mean, the dialogue was so boilerplate that I was just getting nothing from that. Uh, we are, we're going to be all over the place with this review, aren't I we? I must have such low standards for things because I... <laughs> Oh, well, to be fair, you're on this podcast, no. so we yeah, <laughs> there's low standards. That's fine. I actually like this though, in that um, we all have different angles on it. We all seem to take away certain things positively that the others didn't. It's like um, you know, as a Star Trek fan, Star Trek Voyager is a show where, like, if you ask any Voyager fan what are the five greatest episodes, every single person's going to give you a different list because the show rarely rises to great. So everyone kind of jumps to various good, uh, you know, episodes that grab them. And I kind of feel like that's the case here where, like, no one's going to hand the 355 movie of the year. And I think we're all kind of on, maybe someone's more positive, but we're all kind of on similar ground where this movie is quite generic. And so we're kind of all glomming onto different aspects of it. Like, there's something that carried us through the movie, but it's different for each person. Which means we found things that we liked and found things that we didn't like. So that's okay. Yeah. But, I mean, would you both agree at least that the concept was good? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I want to, like, raise my question, though, because, you're, you know, concept is really good. Um, the idea of all these spy agencies all working together, these women from all these various parts of the world. You know, how, what are their lives like and how do they all bond together? That's a really strong idea. But, like, is it possible to make a franchise out of that when you don't have a strong directorial vision or a real strong visual stamp? Because I don't care what it is, whether it's Bond, Mission Impossible, um, Bourne, John Wick, all of these things come out of the gate and they grab people with action they haven't seen before. And can you have a franchise launch where people are like, oh, that stuff's fine, I guess. Like, all those movies made an impact right out of the gate. But all those movies have one protagonist. Mission Impossible is arguably... They all die. Arguably. It's no mean feat. It's no mean feat. I'm just saying. I guess the closest thing, you know, it's not a spy movie, but Simon Kinberg comes from the X-Men franchise. And uh, the action in the first X-Men movie is not particularly impressive. As in the first old school X-Men one or the 2000 X-Men. The year 2000, yeah. Yeah, we did cover that on the Patreon. You're right. That was we weren't such big fans looking back on it. That's fair. 
Yeah, I I don't know. I I think it, you could have if, if if this film had like an interesting visual stamp, maybe that would have made it stick out. It's something we also spoke about in Salt. Is there's again a good concept, poor delivery. Like there's not a single action scene in Salt that I can remember. The truck one is probably the big one, but yeah, it feels like things you've seen or the cannon that she made, maybe. Yeah. Um, sure. But yeah, like I, again, I don't feel this this film had its sort of image it didn't have something that sticks with you particularly yeah i think it it needed yeah it needed more time in the oven before it was ready perfect it just needed yeah going back to the kitchen thing i don't know (laughs) back to the kitchen (laughs) yeah it needed more time in the oven i like it i've gotten the title wrong and it's not called the kitchen and i'm completely (laughs) wrong we're just making kitchen jokes the whole time um there was like one moment where diane kruger shot someone using a purse as a silencer i was like i've never seen that before that's pretty cool that was cool that was cool I like that whole chase through um, Marrakesh. I thought that was quite fun. And another thing I thought was good was they they showed realistic gun reloading, I noticed. Like you always saw Mace or Marie reloading their guns. And, and I thought that was good because usually, you know, sometimes it's just like bang, bang, bang. And you're like, I know that you don't have that many rounds. Like, how are you still going? But I liked that they it showed them reload a lot. It's something that like it will frustrate some people to no end. They they will see him like that guy's clearly out of bullets. That clip's empty, and some people will not care. And you can keep shooting all day long. Yeah, but I'm actually with you on that, Shayla. I I count bullets. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know guns that well, but I know how often a you know a semi-automatic pistol, how many rounds it tends to have. And every film I watch, I'm like, ah, you're out, son. Mm-hmm. You're out. You need to reload. But uh, it sounds like Cam doesn't care. <laughs> there was one another element to this movie I kind of appreciate, which is Sebastian Stan. His character is kind of a mess. I don't really, you know, you I can't don't have defend a lot to this say. cam. What are you doing? What Stepping I like into the fire. <laughs> what are you doing? What I like is when like Jason Fleming plays, I guess, the big bad of the movie. When Sebastian Stan is uh, screwed over and du- you know shows up with the duplicate, where he starts getting like beaten up by the big bad. And he becomes this kind of like desperate kind of rat character running around. I like the idea of him as just like him on the back foot and kind of pathetic. Like I found that more fun. See, this is an interesting point to point out. In my research, and it didn't come up in your primer, maybe because you couldn't verify it, Cam, but I read that there was reshoots. I mean, that's possible. I mean, most movies have reshoots. It's not uncommon. Apparently they were all in London. And so my theory... I have another theory about this film. Is that everything with Jason Fleming was a reshoot? I don't think so. He never meets anyone else. He just meets Sebastian Stan and random henchmen. So you could there could have been more Sebastian Stan at some point. But instead you get this bit at the end where he's like living in comfort. You get this whole like two months later thing where he's just like living in somewhere and they, they give him the old the old uh, poison cup of tea. I feel like that is just like a whole reshoot. So you're saying that if we follow this theory down the rabbit hole, that Sebastian Stan was the primary villain of the movie, and then there was that, what, Marks or whatever his name was, the CIA head, who um, was secretly also a mole. Like, that's the primary villainy. Yeah. Like, there's probably more of them somewhere that was dumped. And they were like, this doesn't quite make sense. Let's get another guy in. And they give it like this sort of mafia boss thing. It just doesn't talk. There's no like he doesn't meet anyone, doesn't talk to anyone else. I guess. Wait, 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 wait. 
But then, like, you have Sebastian Stan at that auction buying whatever the heck that doohickey is called for, like, $500 million? Where would he get that money? Uh, we're asking a lot of questions about this film. But didn't he work for the CIA? And doesn't Marx work for the CIA? Could he get the money that way? Do you think the CIA has $500 million? I have no idea. <laughs> We're all trying to figure it out. I'm just positing a theory. I, yeah, I don't know. It just I got a hunch whilst I was watching it. But yeah, there were reshoots. Apparently, I've I've verified it now. But uh, yeah, that's just, that could also be COVID related as well, though. Could be. It could be. Well, I think before we move on to any criticisms we might have, uh, any likes left? I'm all out. Shayla, what have you got? The last one that I have is that I really liked the scene where they were all dressed up for the party and the comms was in their jewelry. I thought that was really cool because mm-hmm. it reminded me of Bond because he's always got something. He's got toothpaste or he's got whatever. That's, you know, like an everyday thing that he uses as a gadget. So I really enjoyed that. And that's a nice, that's, again, there's these things in these films that are nice touches. Like That's a really nice touch. It's a, a, a little bit, someone's put some thought into that and I like it. Again, taking me back to Charlie's Angels, but they had that like gadget room. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like all those interesting gadgets and that whole wardrobe as well that they went into at one point. That's like, it's like rolling in this, you know, femininity into the spy world because you think about James Bond and it's rolling in the masculinity of all like tuxedos and things like that and making it gadgety and all this sort of thing, attache cases and such. Well, it's good. Roll the you know dresses, necklaces. Roll that into spy work. Great idea. Um, and then it's just other bits of the film don't hold up. But I I agree with you, Shayla. I think that's great. Yeah, I mean it's a really fun shot when they're all walking together. It has that real glamour to it. But like, well, four of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I don't know. Charlie's Angels did a very similar thing, and that had like a really fun dance sequence. So I'm like, that one gets the point. That's fair. Should it have been called the uh, the free four four? I don't get it. Is that a Charlie's Angels joke? No, it was the lack of Bing Bing fans for most of the film. Oh, I oh. see. I see. Wow, that one didn't land, folks. Thanks for that. Uh... <laughs> yeah, win them all, Scott. <laughs> no, I genuinely can't. Uh, I, I, I kind of wish someone would do a dance number to distract everyone right now. Very awkward. Here's a question. Um, because we keep bringing up the 355, 344, all these jokes and whatever, 355 refers to like female agents. It was a term that's existed for a while in CIA history and spy history. Should they have set that up real early as opposed to like not really explaining that till near the end of the movie? Well, this is why I think that was a reshoot. Because it was like, we never explained it. We have to explain it. And so you have this kind of hokey line of Jessica Chastain saying it to Sebastian Stan. Hey, do you remember what they told us in training school about the 355? Well, well guess what, kid? We're at the 355 and you're going to die for some tea. But I don't know. I, I would have had it earlier on or that they're reading about it or it's like referenced somehow. I would have had it earlier, right? Yeah, and even the way they did it, I found it really strange. And I guess this is one of my dislikes. But when when Mace was talking about it, the way she talked about it, I was like, is she saying she's the three five five? Like, it, like just <laughs> the information that she brought up was so vague that I was like, why are you even mentioning it? Like, I don't understand why. And it's the same where she where uh, she said he was going to be taken away to a prison for the rest of his life, but then he was obviously just dead. Like, did you say that so that you sent him into death scared? that he was going to be is that what it was like I... is it for us or for him yeah, yeah. like i i just i it was a bit confusing yeah well the whole idea of the 355 is it it was a cipher like it was meant to be a, it was like a, a concept and it was meant to scare people but and that and that kind of works in this group but you didn't necessarily have to define it you could just say that and people could go look it up like the matrix says what the matrix is but 
Star Trek doesn't really say Star Trek at any point, except for one film. You don't have to explain what you're doing. Well, Star Trek is pretty. Uh, that one makes a lot of sense. It was a poor. It, it was a poor thing to compare. I know. Y- you throw up the three five five, and people think it's a phone area code. Well, speak. I wrote a joke down. Uh, speaking of bad jokes, and see if this one lands. Um, and phones. So they say the three five five is to do with this uh, Civil War spy. I say the title means the amount of times I checked my phone whilst watching it. Oh. Oh, there was a joke I saw one of the savage uh, letterboxed reviews from a working film critic. It's not just a user. It's actually a film critic who said 355 corresponded to the number of times he yawned through the movie. Oh, (laughs) that's why they pay him the big bucks. That's right. That's right. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam. What have we got in our crosshairs this month? The Condor Man commentary? Oh, it's live. Plus, the 1998 Cameron Diaz smash hit comedy, There's Something About Mary. Watch out for those dogs on speed. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Um, okay, well, it sounds like we're into dislike territory, and unfortunately my list is a bit bigger when it comes to dislikes. Um, I'm going to go with the MacGuffin. Okay. I just didn't, like, I, I mean, there's other things to pick on, sure, but, like, I just felt like it's just so generic, and you don't ever get a sense of the actual problems it can cause. Like, you see a plane blowing up, and you see some planes flying into... I think like the Eiffel Tower or something like that on the news. I don't think it was into the Eiffel Tower, was it? I think I, there's a shot of the Eiffel Tower on fire. I thought planes were just dropping or something. I don't know. I don't yeah. I don't I'll have to check the tape. I'm like 90% sure that's correct. If it's if it's wrong, it's wrong. But they they are but basically they're dropping planes out of the air. That's what they're right. using it for. But the idea is it can do all kinds of things. Yeah. Um but it never seems to impact our spies. I think the issue for me with the MacGuffin is that, like, on its face, it's fine. It is what it is. It's really no different than a lot of just action-based spy films. But I think if you're going to have a very generic MacGuffin, the movie's not about it. The movie has to be a propulsive beginning to end, carrying you by the seat of your pants through that journey so you're not stopping to sit there and really contemplate what it means. When I watch Mission Impossible 3, I'm not sitting there going hmm, what are the ramifications of the rabbit's foot? Like, I don't care because that movie is just at a sprint, a Tom Cruise sprint, if you will, throughout the entire run of that two-hour, you know, runtime. Runtime, like Tom Cruise. Am I right? (laughs) Cam is on fire. Cam's got the jokes today. I like it. Whereas, like, the 355, it stops a lot of the time and and it's kind of slow-paced in ways. Like, it doesn't have a strong sense of that, like, pace and energy so you kind of sit there and 
think about the MacGuffin. Characters talk about the MacGuffin. And there's just, again, a lot more wasted time spent on it. What do you think, Shayla? Uh, my my biggest things that I didn't like was predictability. But also at the same time, I said sometimes you just want to watch something predictable. It's fun to guess things. It's fun to be right. But mm-hmm. the predictability was a bit of a bummer. And I also noticed, I didn't notice this as much on my first time watching it. Because I, I, I've adopted your thing, Scott, where you watch them twice to like... Oh, yeah, wow. like I, I've converted wow. you. Yeah. Wow! Well, it makes sense to me because the first time you're watching it, and you don't know, you have no idea where it's going to go. You, you're just taking it in. But the second time, you already know where it's going, so you can focus on other stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so the second time I watched it, I noticed how shaky the camera was in points where it absolutely did not need to be shaky. Like if they're just you know sitting in a room talking to each other, why do I feel like I'm on a boat? Like it was just that. Those are my two biggest things that were kind of a bummer for me. There's a scene where um, Jessica Chastain and Diane Kruger are fighting, uh, throwing shellfish at each other, each other, I believe. In a cooler, yeah. In a cooler. And it's some of the wonkiest like action cinematography I've seen. Like, there's, I get the Bourne style. We've we've spoken about it ad infinitum on this show. We've done yeah. a Bourne roundtable. We've had like Tony Scott films on here. We understand how this is done well and incorrectly, Taken 3. And this just baffled me. Like, there's, I get that, like, she throws, I think uh, Diane Kruger throws a tray of shrimp or something. And the camera's, like, all over the place. It's like the cameraman tripped and they tried to catch it all in the frame. It, Maybe he was insane. allergic to shrimp and he was like, no, no, no. <laughs> ah! <laughs> I made a note on that where I said, like, it's a pulsating camera. Like, it's not even shaky cam. It's like the camera is pulsating half yeah. the time when I'm watching these action scenes. And you're right, it had kind of the drunk cam. A lot of the time where it's kind of these handheld moments. And it was reminding me actually of Obi-Wan, which just finished um, you know, its run on Disney Plus and had very similar techniques where you'd just be watching a scene of two characters talking and the camera's like drunkenly tilting backwards and forwards. And you're like, why? Like, why are you doing this? It's not making me more engaged with what I'm watching. It just feels like style for the sake of style. But that kind of like leans towards something I really didn't like about this movie, which is the direction. I think Simon Kinberg, he must be the nicest man in Hollywood. Like he has to be. You go down his filmography, there's a lot of bad stuff there. But I remember there was a story. It was about uh, Jennifer Lawrence coming back for Dark Phoenix because her contract was up after Apocalypse. And it was well known she did not like playing that role because of the makeup. And I think just like not that engaged by the material she was being given in those films. And they asked her, you know, why did you come back for Dark Phoenix? And she said, because my, my, you know, my friend Simon asked me and I can't turn him down. And I was like, well, that's odd. Okay. Like he must be like really good with people. Like people seem to like him. And then I look at this movie where Jessica Chastain on the set of Dark Phoenix is going to him being like, Simon, I've got an idea. What do you think? This is not the guy to be setting your franchise off out of the gate. Like, Imagine this like same material, but you gave it to just like a real stylist, you know, like Martin Campbell, if they were good, Martin Campbell, if you wanted to have like, yeah, it's like, uh, what about like Gareth Evans who did like the raid and stuff like that? You know, like there's so many filmmakers out there who have genuine propulsive action chops where you tie that into something like this, even if like the plot maybe is a little still wonky you could have action scenes that people are like, holy crap, did you see that? Versus someone whose approach to action is 
very beginners. Like, he's just not someone who has, like, a long career of shooting action, and he doesn't do it well here. Well, usually you can hang your hat on one of the two things you said. You either have a strong script with good characterizations, or you have action scenes that you at least remember. Like, and and so this film has neither of them, it seems like, unfortunately. And I, I, I would also point back at, I know we're just talking about, it, it's because at the point of recording, the f- episode came out this week, but Salt had the same issues. Good concept, but the action was uninspired. And it didn't really dive into the characters too much because it didn't know who it was. The whole premise of the film is who is Salt? It's like, answer the questions for us. You know, <laughs> paint by numbers, basically. Um, yeah, I, I completely get it, Cam. I, I don't know much about Simon's work, I have to say. I can't point to a, a film he's directed that was, was good. He's only done two. So this is this is it? Yeah. Wow, okay. And I don't know that there'll be that many you know, big opportunities coming up after um, Dark Phoenix really did not do well and was, you know, critically savaged. And then this was kind of the same thing. So I don't know what his future holds. But, like, I also just wonder, like, they probably should have gotten a female director for this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, Catherine Bigelow is probably not going to make this movie, but where's the young Catherine Bigelow? Like, find someone who's, like, earlier in their career would take on more of a, um, you know, a kind of a high concept like this who would like to do just like an action-based story. You know, Catherine Bigelow's kind of moved on to bigger things like, you know, Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty and what have you. Find someone who's doing kind of what Catherine Bigelow was doing earlier in her career, stuff like Point Break. Find the person that wants to make those movies and has those action chops because I can guarantee that person's out there. I actually immediately just thought of um, Kathy Yan, who did Birds of Prey. Yeah. Like, I thought that film was really, really, really good. So to apply that kind of style to like a female-led um spy movie would be really cool i think and kathy ann actually brought in the stunt team who worked on the john wick films oh, and you got some memorable action out of that movie like what happens if you apply that same formula to this and it's an independent production so you don't have because birds of prey i believe had some issues with studio meddling because it was a warner brothers thing and warner brothers famously meddled with their dc movies quite a lot whereas this is an independent thing with jessica chastain protecting the director and so and no outside studio interference like what happens if you give kathy yan this movie could have been something interesting yeah i i i actually like i was just thinking about birds of prey as you two were talking but there's at least two sequences i remember from that film yeah Absolutely. Distinctly. Mm-hmm. And um, all action-based, but I remember that. I don't think I remember any action sequences except for maybe throwing shrimp from the 355. <laughs> Sorry? Well, what do you oh, think? That, that old okay. shrimp-throwing film. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, they shoot this movie. They're done with it. What do you think they think their biggest action moment is? Because this is an action movie, more or less. Maybe the whole subway chase with mace and marie no yeah or the, like oh you mean the one from the jackal uh, oh yeah the jackal yeah, yeah. no there was no <laughs> cg trains no yeah. yeah um maybe like with jessica chastain i think there's maybe two that jump to my mind maybe jessica chastain climbing the building or also the uh scene with the um you know the the shipping containers on the boat I, I thought the uh, the handoff in Marrakesh, the brush pass, if uh. you like to use the old tradecraft words, was was quite interesting to watch. Um, 
I've seen it done better in other spy films already on this show, but... My one gripe with that, though, I had a James Bond moment. Um, okay. I was like, stop touching your ear, because I think all of them were like <laughs> like this some of the time when they were doing, like, looking at that handoff or, like, trying to figure out where it was going. I, they were touching their ear so much. Sorry, I'll stop touching my ear, Shayla. I get, I get the message. <laughs> Jeez. Good. Loud and clear. <laughs> and I think also, like, if you just had a stronger director, you could have sequences like the auction, for example, that had more tension. Like that whole bit where Penelope Cruz had to get closer to that guy she was flirting with earlier and throw her bag out. I was actually more confused as to what was going on in that scene than, like, carried through it. I am... Um... I was trying to think, because I remember seeing a couple of films that we've tackled so far that had auction scenes. I think North by Northwest had an auction scene that had more tension in it. But there's been another one as well that I think... The other one that jumps to mind, which we haven't covered, is Octopussy. We're back to Octopussy again. That's right. (laughs) Again, an insane film, but you have memorable moments. Bond in a tuk-tuk, I will not forget. It's true. Yeah. Uh, Not for necessarily good reasons, but I won't forget it. Now, I, I kind of, maybe before we get to the knock list and any other final notes, I did want to I did want to bring up a question because it, it started to gripe me a little, is that we keep talking about these female-led spy films, especially in the last 20 years. Now, I know there's still a couple of gems out there. I know Atomic Blonde is still out there. But what what's going wrong that they're not nailing it down? Why don't we have a successful female-led spy franchise that, that we can turn to when the Bournes are not on or where there's no Bond in the cinemas this year. Where is that franchise? Because there's an audience, I can guarantee you. Maybe they're trying so hard to get these female-led projects going that they don't take the time to really make sure they're good because maybe they just want to get crank them out. And I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. That's just the first thing I thought of, but... No, every point's valid. It, it, I mean, this film definitely, you said it earlier, needed more time in the oven. It did. It's like, you know what it reminds me of is in the earlier era of the superhero movies before, you know, there was a long run up to things like Wonder Woman and, um, and also like, you know, Captain Marvel. Get and, Condor oh, Man's name out your mouth, Cam. <laughs> but there was a period where studios would be like, well, hey. Audiences don't care about female-fronted superhero movies. Look at Supergirl. Look at Catwoman. Look at Elektra. No one went to those movies. And it's like, well, yeah, because they were terrible, like, across the board. Like, they were not good movies. And I think the problem is, this one's a weird case. Because I can look at other ones we've tackled where it's like, the studio was just kind of cranking them out quickly. And guess what? It didn't turn out great. Oh, well, big surprise. This is a weird one because it is an independent production headed by Jessica Chastain. So, like, this is kind of a weird one. I have to almost put aside. But, like, some of the other ones that have tanked, it's like there's been a few that have landed on that January dump month where they were like, we've got kind of a bad movie. Just throw it out there. I think I think Rhythm Section was the same kind of release strategy. I think so. Um, and Atomic Blonde is one where it's like it didn't hit a home run at the box office, but uh, they didn't roll the dice on a sequel. Whereas John Wick... You know, it was a modest hit, but it was one where they're like, well, let's make a second. And I don't know if that was Charlize Theron's schedule. I don't know if she wasn't eager to jump in and do another sequel immediately. I don't have any idea. But it is the sense of like, they are both putting out movies that 
don't grab an audience. You look at the marketing for this movie or rhythm section, like there's nothing that would grab a mass audience. And then on the flip side, movies that just, they won't roll a dice on a sequel. So I don't know. Like even Salt, which we talked about, and I thought Salt had a lot of problems, but they weren't rolling the dice on that sequel. No, because it didn't give them enough money to make them feel secure in their choice. Yeah. There's unfortunate things like, we don't know what happened with Atomic Blonde. We haven't tackled the film. We don't know the background of it, why there wasn't a sequel just yet. There could be one at some point. Who knows, right? Maybe. I mean, we're getting a Furiosa follow-up, which is a female-led action film. Yep. That's good. I like that. Um, I don't think Charlie's Theron's in it, though. No. I mean, who knows? Maybe bookends or something. We'll see. Sure. But... Maybe it just has to go back to at the script level, like Shayla was saying. Like We just need to have a solid concept that doesn't necessarily rely on it just being, hey, look, we've got women in tuxedos. They're your James Bond. Like, no. Give us a cool story and, and build it from the ground up and actually have a, an interesting concept. But it sounds like there was an interesting concept here, and I think there was. I, I don't know where it got lost. Where was that baton dropped somewhere along the line? Was it the direction? Was it the script? I don't know. It's a shame. I would have worked with different writers, honestly. I think that's maybe a bit of an issue there, and I think there's a number of things. We're going to tackle Harriet the Spy at some point, but like, masterpiece. What happened? Could be, could be. But it's someone who's also um, much more, um, like, I mean, the, the... you know, primary writer of this movie works almost entirely in television, and it's and procedurals, like, isn't it as well? Like, it's, yeah, a lot of procedural television. Yeah, I don't know. I, but female-led writer, uh, you know, uh, obviously Simon Kierberg did a rewrite, but yeah, you know, you'd think there'd be some passion to get it right. I don't know. I don't know, but sometimes good intentions aren't enough, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you guys have any thoughts as to what they could do to bring up the standard of female-led spy films, you know, let us know, because God knows. Let them know, to be honest with you. Tell them. They're the ones making the films, not us. I think it's also a case you only need one. You just have to get that one through the pipeline that suddenly hits a home run like a Wonder Woman, and you're off to the races, and suddenly you're going to have more and more, and, and also some really interesting talent wanting to make those movies, and... When you look at the history, there's been not a lot of them with strong directors behind them. But, you know, you look at how uh, both Anna de Armas and uh, Lashana Lynch, their turns in No Time to Die. I know I made a joke about that film earlier, but I have seen it, obviously. Yeah. Um, they had both had great moments in that film and had both had times to shine. So there's hope. And I think a lot of that was Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Keep an eye out for that Anna de Armas, John Wick spinoff, Ballerina. That could be the one. Like, you just don't know. Yeah. Oh, I just forgot about that. Great point. Yes. Maybe that could be the one. And we're talking about that in two years' time. Like, it it's, it started a whole franchise. Because James Bond, Dr. No started a lot of this. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we just need our female Dr. No. Should they have rolled the dice on the Jinx spinoff from Die Another Day? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> No conversation there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, sir. No, 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 no. no, no. I remember hearing, though, that uh, there was rumors that the script for the Jinx film was actually very strong. So who knows, right? Probably could have been good. 
I mean, never know. It's Halle Berry. Like, I'm sure they would have been fun, not necessarily good. Fun coming to Patreon soon. Catwoman. Ah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> No, thank you. Please don't make me watch that film again. It's a basketball <laughs> scene. I'll never get out of my head. I've never watched it. Oh, well. I mean, I've, I've I, never seen it. I would watch a spinoff of Halle Berry's John Wick character. That would be pretty cool. Sure. 100% I'd get behind that. She was great in that film. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think before we get to the knock list, any final notes? Uh, I'll throw it out. Shayla, do you have anything left for us? I think... I think that was pretty much it. And and just a note to, you know, like maybe what they could do for female led projects. Um, just like, I feel like they just need to take the time. And because I feel the same way with DC with their movies and their whole strategy, because they were trying to catch up to Marvel. I'm like, if you just stopped and just took your time, you wouldn't be releasing movies that are that don't go over so well. So I think if they just had a if they just took their time to create something new and brought in the right people and, you know, had the right marketing strategy i just i think it could be something i just i don't for some reason the time's not being taken because like we've said the three three five five it had a great concept but what happened what what happened so i just i think maybe we need to slow down and just just leave it in the oven create good yeah no it's always good to be a little overdone than underdone maybe i don't know that doesn't that does actually hold up like i'd rather have bread that's slightly burnt than under baked unless it's chocolate chip cookies because when you get those just but i would bit. argue that's baked <laughs> ah, okay good point yeah you don't want dough <laughs> right yeah okay yeah i agree <laughs> my only note left is i wrote this quite early on at some point this film becomes the you son of a bitch i'm in the movie every single character is like i don't want to do this Ah, oh, you son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> Every single person. like They just dragged into it. It made me laugh because it's like, no one was like, yeah, I want to work with you. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, for those who've seen Rick and Morty, that's what I'm referencing. But if you haven't, it's a fun show. Cam, do you have any final notes? I had a couple. I had a question for you. Maybe I... You guys watched it twice, so maybe you can answer this. There's the point where Diane Kruger takes... Um, I think is it... Bing Bing fan, I think, to the safe house. Who does she take to a safe house? Oh, Gracia. Yeah. Gracie, thank you. Yeah. Gracie, sorry. And then Jessica Chastain just shows up. How did she know where the safe house was? I think it's because Khadija found her. It's not her safe she... It's not a safe house. Oh. Diane Kruger said it was a safe house. Yeah, she lied. What? Because Penelope Cruz says this doesn't look like a... Whatever the name of the organization is, safe house. Uh-huh. Because it's not. It's a hotel room. Wasn't it like the turned over hotel room or something from earlier on in the film as well? Because that's why like the lampshade's knocked over and stuff. Okay. I guess I needed to watch the movie three times <laughs> to okay. fully understand the, uh, it. The three, five, five. <laughs> yeah. um, that's how many times you need to watch it to make it make sense. <laughs> <laughs> and then my final note was, this movie was edited by Lee Smith, who edited Inception. This man has put together some of the um, most incredibly well-edited films in recent memory. What kind of footage was he being handed for the 355? Shaky cam stuff, like really uh-huh. shaky stuff. It was definitely shaky. Overfield level stuff. Yeah. I, I can only imagine he was just like, well, I'll do what I can. 
it feels like that. Like, yeah, I didn't know that connection, but I can. I it's a shame because I love Inception. We were actually going to cover Inception at some point down the road. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I did not know that. That's a that's a real shame. Yes. Yeah. Do you ever wonder? Like, it, sometimes it is just a gig for people. It that's fair. I'm in between Chris Nolan films. Yeah, I'll edit your spy film. Oh. Oh. <laughs> you look at the way that he edits together the action sequences in Inception. I, I just think he was being given like real garbage for in terms of the um you know, the fight sequences and stuff like that. I just don't think they were shooting particularly dynamic footage. It's funny because just the other day I was watching um RRR, the Indian oh, action yeah. film that's like yeah, yeah. really become a crossover hit. And it has made me so intolerant of terrible action in Hollywood movies. Like, you watch that movie and you're like, this cost, like, I think $75 million. It looks unbelievable. Like, it is something that belongs, you know, in consideration next to stuff like Fury Road, The Raid, things like that. And I'm like, there is no excuse for how mediocre the action is in, frankly, the majority of the movies we cover on this podcast. I wish I had like a witty reply. I just think that ultimately we've all come to the conclusion that this film is a missed opportunity. Yeah. And it was in the wrong hands. Yep. Simon Kimberg, I'm coming for you. <laughs> but only for Triple X too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I'll get him on for a Spy Master interview now after I've said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have, have you guys ever spoken about my films? No. No, never. <laughs> never. Don't never, look. Never. Please don't look. <laughs> We haven't covered Mr. and Mrs. Smith yet, so we could have very kind things to say later down the road. I, I think I have actually seen it. I do seem to have a memory of renting it, I think, on Blockbuster. I remember liking it. Yeah. I saw it in theaters. Hmm. Well, coming soon, perhaps. But, okay, final question now. Knock list. Uh, we, we may have telegraphed this one a little bit, but uh, is it making the knock list? Shayla, you're up first. What do you think? That's going to be a no from me. Um, I appreciate what they did and what they tried to do, and uh, but no, not not quite knock list worthy. I was just trying to think back because uh, Honor Majesty has made the list, so you you have had a knock list entry. It's true, mm. and that's a good one. That's it. That is a good one. Uh, okay, that's one no. What about you, Cam? No, for me as well. It just it's funny because like. After Salt, which we were more frustrated by, like we liked it in parts, but we were frustrated by it. I was hoping like 355 at the very least would be maybe a little more poppy and energetic where I'd go like, okay, you know what? Like it gave me at least an entertaining time. This one... Kind of like Birds of Prey. Sure, like Birds of Prey, yeah. And it didn't really. It was kind of... It fell too often in that Salt camp of being a movie where I'm like, oh my god, I'm going to forget about this like a year from now. You're going to ask me what happened in 355, and I'm not going to be able to answer you. So, no, it's a little too generic, I think, for knock list status. Well, I, I hate to be the one to do it, but I'm going to make it 355. Uh, it's a no from me. <laughs> oh. yeah, that, I, I'm stretching it this week, folks. I really am sorry. I, I do not have good puns for you. I didn't have a good script to work from, Simon. But uh, yeah, three no's. It's not making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Shayla. Hi. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> hi. Hi there. Um, well, thank you, firstly, for coming back. Um, I know we were struggling and, you know, last person we thought of, really. But, uh, you know. No, but 
there's a reason why we call you our third agent. And, you know, there's not many people I would sort of go to bat for out there. I mean, you know, you designed the T-shirt I'm currently wearing, the amazing What Would Vargas Do? What Does Vargas Do? T-shirt, available now on redbob.com, hashtag cheap plug. And, you know... (laughs) There's not many, as I said, not people I would go to bat for, but you are one of those people online that is a constant stream of positivity in an endless sea of negativity. So I can only thank you for bringing that positivity today uh, and watching the film twice for us. You took four hours of your life to dissect the 355 plus two hours with us now. That is six hours you have spent with Simon Kinberg's work. I can only apologize. <laughs> No worries, it's all good. Your show on YouTube, obviously, we've got a little bit of a spoiler from you there. Um, but where else can people find you? Uh, the biggest one would be Twitter. Um, so my handle is Shaylay, S-H-A-Y-L-A-Y-Y. I always think I'm spelling my name wrong when I say it, but I think I got it right there. Um, you can come talk to me about whatever. Um, and I just want to say thank you for the kind words also. Like, I appreciate that. Um, it's It's easy to... I don't know, be positive and be wonderful when you've got positive and wonderful people around you. And that's t- you too. Well, so, I don't I, know about that part. <laughs> hey, get out, get out of here. All, You're lovely. You're both hatred. lovely. It's all hatred. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> and uh, no, I, you guys are great. And I just, I appreciate that very much. Well, I, you know, you hold the title now for most visits on the show. Um, I want to keep that going. I think you are the third agent. So if anyone gets near your record, I'll have to get you back on just to bump it up. Even if it's just like a call in at the end of the show to be like, still in charge, still number one. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Um, but there will be, of course, links in the show notes below to the YouTube channel and where to find you online. But again, Shayla, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Um, has it? I'm sorry. Yeah, the only bummer is there's no theme song for this uh movie so that cam can't sing it that's true that was my biggest bummer actually is that a bummer yep (laughs) well Well. make one up now (laughs) the three five five i don't know (laughs) oh my god i can't he's on the spot now (laughs) (laughs) is that sweat i see dripping down his brow knees weak arms are heavy it's vomit on his sweater already <laughs> i could have easily done like a rap for the 355 but i would have needed a little bit of time to prepare so that's fair yeah <laughs> well there you are folks that was the 355 it didn't make the list unfortunately but if you want to find out the films that did make the knock list head over to letterbox.com slash spy and find out more cam what on earth are we talking about next week we're actually talking about a movie that was made only a few years before the 355. We are wrapping up our Ghost in the Shell coverage with a review of the Scarlett Johansson live-action remake of the classic anime. We really love that anime. Will we love the remake? We'll find out. Speaking of uh, female-led action films. Yep. There you go. Another another, another chance at bat here. Let's see if we can uh, get a home run. I, I almost couldn't remember what uh, a good score in baseball was it's like a bat oh no sports metaphors oh god home run hopefully ghost in the shell can hit a home run so your mission should you choose to accept it is to check out ghost in the shell from 2017 and join us next week if you like what you heard on the show please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and do not forget to follow us 
discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and now YouTube. But until next week, listeners, I'm not an agent. I'm a therapist. <laughs> <laughs>